and the report is so scathing it names individual drug regulators by name so no no wonder they essentially wanted to bury it as long as policy makers and the media keep thinking that counterfeit drugs are the problem we are barking up the wrong tree it's only 2 years ago that we had this tragedy in jammu how is it that we never learned Hello everyone, this is News and Views, the Quint's podcast series where we introduce you to some of the greatest minds across different fields through in-depth interviews. I'm Anushka, I'm a health reporter with the Quint and today we are going to be talking to Dinesh Thakur and Prashant Reddy. Dinesh Thakur is a public health activist. He's known for having blown the whistle on data fudging and manufacturing malpractices by one of India's largest generic drug makers, Ranbaxy. back in 2005 at great personal and professional risk my diary and prashant reddy is a lawyer who specializes in drugs regulation laws and transparency laws together they've now co-authored the book the truth pill where they break down the workings of our health authorities in the country and the regulatory issues with our made in india drugs We have a lot to talk about but before we jump in you can check out episodes of News and Views and all other podcasts by the Quint on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining me gentlemen. Welcome to the Quint. Thank you Anushka. So um you know I've I've got to say I've got you at a apt time although uh, a bit unfortunate as well and just to kind of set the context for our listeners Your book The Truth Pill begins with an anecdote of children in Jammu dying of DEG poisoning from contaminated cough syrup. This was in 2019 and just a couple of days ago a similar incident was reported in the Gambia and Africa where over 60 children lost their lives to DEG poisoning from contaminated cough syrups manufactured in India by an Indian pharmaceutical company in Haryana. And so I really want to begin there because this is such an eerie situation. In the book uh you've talked about how DEG poisoning is something that's been known in the medical field since 1937 and here we have another massive case of exactly that happening in 2022 so i mean what's happening here why is something like this still happening all these years later and how are contaminated drugs with known dangerous toxins like DEG still seeping through the cracks of health authorities i mean what is this really say yeah so look abishka i think the point here Uh, the, the question you're asking is actually very apt for um, in the reason why we wrote this book, right? I think that you know when we were working on this book for the last three and a half years, never did we imagine that this would be the kind of launch that we would have actually have to deal with. But to the, to the point that you're making is why do these things keep happening at regular frequency, right? So let me tell you two two anecdotes. If if um, in our book we kind of recount the story. That the first DEG poisoning, mass poisoning event happened in, in the United States in 1937. Um, there was this company called S.E. Messenger that wanted to uh, formulate sulfonamide into a syrup, and that chemist used you know, diethylene glycol because they wanted to increase their sales and sell it to kids. And that was the first instance that actually happened, and they had a poisoning event where 105 people died, you know, including 34 or children, and so. The U.S. government at that time enacted what was the precursor to the U.S. FDA right now. The authority that gave the government actually established the regulator, the Federal Foods Drugs Act. Since then, there has not been a single incidence of DEG poisoning in the United States. Compare that to India, right? Since we became independent, we recount five such instances. So the question there is, why is it so? Why? Why are we different? And the only thing that we can point to is the fact that. 
our regulation and the way that we enforce regulation isn't all that great <clears throat> because, you know, the same thing keeps happening. It's only two years ago that we had this tragedy in Jammu. The core, the root cause of this nonsense that actually happens time and time again is our regulatory system and the regulators who are charged with enforcing that. How is it that we never learned, right? I can understand the first time it happened, you didn't have any experience dealing with a situation of this nature, the one that happened in Madras. How can we not learn from that? And if you're not doing that, right, it, it points to one of two things. Either, you know, you don't care or the fact that, you know, whatever you're working with, the system, the processes, and the people who are accountable to the people of India, they're not doing their job. And what we try to do in our book, The Truth Pill, is we recount instances of this nature. This is one instance. We begin with this because it's so egregious, right? Anytime there's a mass poisoning event with glycol, the victims are invariably children because children's body mass is obviously much smaller than adult body mass, right? And if you have this level of contamination, their kidneys will not be able to process and eliminate this poison. And we start with this prologue just to illustrate the fact that even deaths of children doesn't seem to make a difference in our regulatory structure. Exactly. And the sense I kind of got, there seems to be no clarity on who the authority is that can be held accountable or pulled up when something like this happens. I mean, even Maiden Pharma has been taken to court on several occasions. They've been blacklisted and all that. But I mean, it doesn't seem to have made any difference, right? I mean, they're still functioning. They're still uh, doing what they do. Yeah. And, and so you have to ask yourself, right? Why is it so? Is there no fear of prosecution? Is there no fear of com- lack of compliance? Is there no fear of you know, compliance with the law, right? If these things keep happening t- over time, why, 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 do we need, why do we need to sort of you know, keep doing this over and over again? See, in this specific case of, you know, what's happened in, uh, you know, Gambia, it's quite clear who was responsible. It was the Haryana State Drug Controller who had licensed that plant for manufacture. Plus, the central regulator, which is the CDSC, also had to give a certification for the export process. So these two are definitely, uh, you can't pin the blame on them. But yes, the larger problem is that we have a very, very fragmented system of regulation. And that's the point that kept coming up when we were doing research. We have a regulator in every state and uh, union territory. It's generally called the drug controller. So the state drug controllers are responsible for licensing manufacturing facilities, which is one of the most crucial tasks when it comes to drug regulation. And they're also responsible for market surveillance and prosecutions, which is they go out, they draw samples from the market, they test those samples in government labs, and then if the samples fail quality testing, they may or may not prosecute the manufacturer. The central drug regulator has a smaller role, uh, mainly confined to deciding what type of drugs can be sold in the Indian market. And it also regulates imports of drugs. Now, what happens on a daily basis in India is that most of the manufacturing happens just in a few states in India. So Himachal Pradesh, Uttarakhand, Gujarat, Telangana, these are generally the manufacturing hub. Now, when these states manufacture, they can send the drugs to any other state in the country. So for example, a drug comes to Tamil Nadu, 
a Tamil Nadu drug inspector tests the drug when he buys it from the market, and the drug fails quality testing. Now, the only thing that the Tamil Nadu drug inspector can do is to initiate a criminal prosecution before a judicial magistrate in a court in a court in that's located in Tamil Nadu. A criminal prosecution takes a really long time in India. He cannot, for example, block that particular company situated in Himachal Pradesh from selling in Tamil Nadu. He cannot even conduct a raid on the manufacturing facility to collect evidence. He can't do that unless he has the cooperation of the drug inspector in Himachal Pradesh. So basically, there's very little that states can do under the present legal framework. And in Himachal itself, you need to understand the political economy of how it works over there. Himachal Pradesh is a manufacturing hub because it has got an excise holiday from the central government. So the Himachal Pradesh state government doesn't have a real incentive to crack down on, reg- on these pharma companies by strengthening its regulatory standards. Because the moment it starts, you know, actually inspecting these plants or prosecuting them, chances are the pharma industry will try go and look, you know, for another state to set up their shop in. And this is a point that's come up in discussions with a lot of experts, that there is this competition between states to attract investment from the pharma industry. And one of the areas they seem to be compromising is uh, regulation. So one of the suggestions is, to at least centralize part of drug re- the part of drug regulation with the central government. Uh, so at least, for example, the licensing and inspection of manufacturing facilities should be conducted by one central authority. And perhaps, you know, enforcement can still be left to the state governments. But we also make it very clear that this is not the only recommendation that is going to change things. We have uh, larger systemic issues with especially transparency. Uh, and I, if you're okay, I'll hand over the, to Dinesh to speak about the transparency aspect of regulation and why it's so important. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, what I, what I can do is, is point out to the most recent, you know, activity that should be fresh in people's minds, right? Just see what happened with the pandemic and the way that, medicines that were supposedly sort of used for treatment of COVID-19, you know, were approved by the drug regulator. If you go back and look at the reporting in the last year, the last year and a half, you'll see how um, completely opaque the decisions to approve drugs like favipiravir, etoluzumab, and, and, you know, drugs of that nature that were with with the the CDSCL, right? I mean, as a reporter also, I've... I've not had to look so closely before COVID at the numbers data and, you know, the regulation, how it works. And it's so frustrating because, you know, you never get answers. You never get access to data. It is very, very opaque, like you were saying. And so so the point here is that unless there is transparency, there is a lot of questionable stuff that goes on. Like, for example, in 2013, the Parliamentary Standing Committee uh, had done a review of CDSCO. And they had submitted a report that highlighted a lot of you know, shenanigans that were happening there. But specifically, they had highlighted four different drugs in the way those drugs were approved by CDSCO. Prashant and I, you know, we, we, we followed up on that report and asked the CDSCO to essentially tell us the basis of those approvals because no less than the Indian parliament was asking for that, right? You guess, you guess what happened? Initially, they told us that they, they lost the report. They don't have the report anymore. 
So he went through the RTA appellate process. Finally, the day before the CIC hearing was, Prashant gets a call from the regulator and they send him an unsigned copy of the report. Two years, okay, they dragged us along for it. And the report is so scathing. It names individual drug regulators by name, saying that these guys essentially violated the law. So no, no wonder they essentially wanted to bury it. And even now we are litigating in the court because they don't want to, they don't want to give us the, the lectures, right? This is where the committee had interviewed people and documented what the interviews were. They refused to give us an extra. They only want to give us an unsigned copy of the report. Yeah, and at a consumer level, at a consumer level, I feel like the marketing works a lot more effectively than you know facts and questioning. And I mean, when you're looking for the this information, you're not able to find it. But as consumers, most people are not even searching for this information, trying to find out, you know, whether the drugs they are consuming. You know, is, one one way yes. to to basically check which drugs are safe, which drugs aren't safe, would have been if we had a central database which contained the results of all test reports conducted by all state and central government labs. As of today, there is a website called uh, XLN, which was created by the Gujarat Drug Control Administration, on which we have data available from three states. That's Gujarat, uh, Maharashtra, and Kerala. You can basically, you know, just type in a company's name and it will show up how many times that company has failed uh, quality testing in these three states. Now, ideally, a, a very simple move to increase transparency is to create a national database of all these reports. And it should be in a searchable, usable form. In the book, also, you mention uh, the 1940 Drugs and Cosmetic Act. And now in um, July 2022, the Ministry of Health released a draft of new bill uh, with the intent of reviewing and replacing the Drugs and Cosmetic Act of 1940. So do you see this bill kind of having an impact on uh, the drug regulation in India and helping to fill these gaps? Or do you, um, you know, what is your kind of thoughts on this? That's, I mean, that's a really good question. Both Prashant and I wrote five different op-eds, you know, mm-hmm. taking, you know, their proposed bill apart piece by piece. Mm-hmm. And in the end, we submitted a consolidated petition. I don't even know, you know, who wrote it, but, um, you know, in our comments to the ministry, we've highlighted several lacunae and shortcomings in what they had proposed as the draft amendment to the Drugs and Cosmetics Act. But as always, you know, there is never a response from the ministry, not even an acknowledgement that, yes, we have received your comments, we'll look into it, nothing of that sort. So what was what were some of these concerns that you had raised, some shortcomings? So if you look at our response to uh, what we said to the ministry, right, we, we kind of looked at in three different buckets. We looked at the structure and we pointed out, you know, what really happens if you don't have a national drug regulator with the authority to sort of do what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And we've looked and we sort of proposed a structure of how to make that happen. Then we looked at compliance. We looked at, you know, the way that, that the Drugs and Cosmetics Act looks at GMP, right? And how every time there is an effort to try and, and fortify the law, the industry essentially intervenes to dilute it down. We, you know, identified specific instances where industry lobbies systematically, you know, water down provisions that were well intended to regulate the industry. 
The third thing that we look at is the, is the prosecution aspect of it, where the draft language of the bill basically decriminalizes things that, uh, that are in the law today that actually hold these companies accountable. Mm. By using this you know, sort of legal shenanigan compounding, they basically you know, are tying the hands of drug inspectors who today can prosecute mm. pharmaceutical companies if they find that they make not a standard quality drug in the market surveillance approach that we take. This new bill essentially will take away that, that ability of drug inspectors to hold pharmaceutical companies accountable for it. So th these are like large areas where this new bill is so regressive that, that we had provided a comprehensive comments back to the ministry. But again, you know, what happens to those? We don't know. It's a black hole over there. Uh, Prashant, would you like to add to that? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, Anushka. I think, you know, it's also important to give a little bit of background on how this bill was drafted. Mm -hmm. uh, in normal circumstances, when government goes about drafting the bill, they generally, you know, try and get some kind of external experts or at least people outside the department to try and draft a new bill. Because if you give it to existing people, they will uh, most likely perpetuate the status quo. And that's exactly what happened in this case when this bill was being drafted. We don't understand why this health minister specifically gave the task of drafting this bill to a committee of eight bureaucrats yeah. who are serving within the existing drug regulatory system. And the committee was headed by the incumbent DCGI, the Drug Controller General of India, who heads the Central Drug Standard Control Organization, the national regulator. So when you set up a committee of bureaucrats like this to draft a law, these are not people who are interested in really altering the status quo. And so, which is why the bill was largely an extension of what was already there in the law. They just tweaked some definitions here and there. And just speaking of like standards of uh, drug regulation in India and the world over as, as well, something as a, as a consumer, a question that I would have is, you know, there are so many medicines which are say banned in India, but then um, the ban is lifted after a few years, like Saradon, for instance, or, uh, you know, certain ingredients like analgin, which was banned in India, but um, which was again reversed, but it is banned in other parts of the world. Um, there are drugs like that, which are banned elsewhere, but they're not banned in India. I mean, uh, either a drug is safe or not, right? Like, what is what is this inconsistency of drugs being banned in some places, but not in other places? And also being banned in India and then the ban being lifted, what does this kind of say? And what should a consumer uh, make of this? You, ha you have to look at the reasons why, right? Let me give you an example. So mm -hmm. when the US FDA implements an import ban on a particular company and a particular manufacturing facility, they will tell you clearly why they are doing that, right? Mm -hmm. They will tell you that they don't have the confidence in the company's ability to make a quality drug. And they'll document several instances from their own inspections, how they've given the company an opportunity to address whatever the observations were. And despite those opportunities to try and fix it, if the company still fails, that's where the board ban comes in, right? So it's a very methodical and transparent process. In India, bans come under the in the obscure uh, section, you know, in the drugs law called Section 26A, 
when the government exercises its power to try and take medicines away, you've seen many of these in the in the cases of the fixed dose combinations, right? Mm-hmm. The reasons why the government banned 300 odd drugs several years ago was because it said that these drugs did not make clinical sense. Many of these drugs were approved by state regulators, meaning the central regulator had no role in their approval. Mm -hmm. And when the government committee actually looked at it, they said that the the clinical rationale for these drugs actually doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And there was no data to support that. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have to look at the reasons why a particular action is taken by a drug is banned. But then you also have to look at, for example, how does the drug actually work in Indian conditions? For that, you need pharmacovigilance data. You need to know how the drug is behaving in the market, and we don't really have good systems to collect that data. So the Ministry of Health had recently proposed starting, uh, you know, requiring companies to print barcodes or QR codes on medicine packets to check the gen, so that the consumer can check the genuineness. Do you think something like that could help uh, the consumer? Well, there has been this uh, this demand for having a track and trace system for a very long time. I think somebody filed a PIL in the Allahabad High Court and the government set up a committee. And uh, even after the tragedy in Gambia, the first response of the government is to trot out this track and trace system, which is basically something like what you were saying. You know, there'll be a QR code or a barcode, which you can scan and it will give you the entire journey of the particular drug. But as Dinesh said, you know, this is one of the problems with both how this issue is looked at in the media and within government and also within parliament. The stereotypical image that people have of the pharma industry is that there is some Lala sitting somewhere making counterfeit medicine and you know profiting from the sale of that counterfeit medicine. Mm-hmm. But from the government's own records and our own research that we have you know, been conducting over the last seven years, we actually haven't come across many cases of counterfeit medicines. What really sticks out like a sore thumb is the issue of substandard drugs. That is, the manufacturer is uh, is legitimate in the sense that he does have a license from the correct authorities, but they aren't able to manufacture up to quality for whatever reasons. So that this perception of the problem also needs to be changed. And I think that is going to be tougher because as long as policymakers and the media keep thinking that counterfeit drugs are the problem, we are barking up the wrong tree. And it's only a matter of time, even before this, you know, this tragedy in Gambia, somebody in the government or the pharma industry is going to try and give it a spin and say that, no, no, this was a counterfeit drug, which was manufactured somewhere else. This has happened before, you know, about five, six, about seven or eight years ago, there was a consignment of Made in India medicine caught in Nigeria, which didn't have any active ingredient. And the government of India's response was, no, this was manufactured in China. And they've just uh, counterfeited an Indian uh, Indian company's uh, label and markings. So I'm, I, it's only a matter of a few days before they come out with a similar explanation for what's happening in Gambia. Okay. And I mean, I would like to wrap it up here. But before we go, I mean from all that we've spoken about now and also reading the book, 
you know this kind of sense that it leaves you with is a feeling of frustration and hopelessness and even exhaustion because you just you know you're stuck in these loops that don't seem to lead anywhere so and you have been working on this for you know working trying to get answers and accountability for decades now so when news like this like say the gambia incident um time and again something like this keeps happening i imagine it must be really frustrating for you as well right like how do you kind of process it and also what would you want consumers to um do or you know what is the message that you would like to leave people with well uh, let me answer that because dinesh will uh, is um, a lot more cynical about this stuff than me <laughs> what what happened in gambia is it's heartbreaking and it is frustrating as you say but i'm still a lot more optimistic uh, because i mean partly because you know people like dinesh are big headed enough to keep going after this issue no matter what stands in the way but also because today i think we are having a, a much more sophisticated debate on what drug regulation is and this is because of the efforts of individual people i mean we in fact we end the book on that note we mm-hmm. list out individual journalists bureaucrats doctors who have been speaking up and have been making small small changes and that was partially the inspiration for us to even write this book because once we have better information out there we can start looking for the correct solutions so i'm i am optimistic i know it can look really bleak given you know the situation that just the, these deaths of these children in gambia but the fact that now we are finally talking about these issues i am optimistic that once we build up enough public pressure the government will have uh, no other alternative but to change the law and um, you know if there are enough people out there asking for change hopefully the government will listen i mean clearly you know my experience the last 10 years is that it really hasn't but maybe this time is different you know one can only hope right uh, thank you so much for joining me uh, both of you this has been a very enlightening and um, interesting conversation and all the best for your book and that was the episode of news and views with dinesh thakur and prashant reddy follow us on instagram on the quint and tell us what you want us to talk about next week check out our website thequint.com for more groundbreaking reports and videos this was anushka signing off News and Views is a Quint original podcast executive produced by Shelly Valia and Ritu Kapoor. This episode was hosted by Anushka Rajesh, edited and produced by Anjali Palod and theme music by BMG Production Music. A special thanks to our guests Dinesh Thakur and Prashant Reddy. You were listening to the Quint's podcast. 